X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Tuesday, May 11th. Today, back in the day in 868, the earliest dated book is printed. A copy of the Diamond Sutra was found amongst the Dunhuang manuscripts in China in 1900. The book is also recognized as the first creative work with a public domain dedication. An edition at the end of the book states that it was created for, quote, universal free distribution. The Mahayana Buddhist Sutras are collections of writings on law, philosophy, and religious matters. The original Sanskrit Diamond Sutra may have been originally written as early as the 2nd century. According to scholar Shigenori Nagamoto, the main theme of the sutra is, quote, the emancipation from the fundamental ignorance of not knowing how to experience reality as it is. Today, back in the day in 1894, the Pullman strike stopped trains in their tracks. Employees for the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago lived in the company town. 1894 saw massive layoffs and lowered wages, but the Pullman Company did not lower rent for its train car manufacturing employees. In response to unlivable conditions and a lack of representation, many workers joined the American Railway Union, led by Eugene Debs. The Pullman car workers went on strike on May 11th. In support, members of the ARU began a boycotting campaign refusing to operate trains containing Pullman cars. Over 125,000 workers walked off the job. Eventually, President Grover Cleveland ordered the military to get involved, prompting violent altercations between federal troops and strikers. The strike lasted until July 20th. 30 workers were killed in various confrontations with federal troops. Eugene Debs was arrested on various charges, including conspiracy to obstruct mail. In prison, Debs became a dedicated socialist. In an effort to appeal to labor interests after the strike, President Cleveland designated Labor Day as an official holiday. And today, back in the day in 2001, the Timbers played their first A-League game. The Timbers had taken an 11-year absence before they were reborn. In 1999, Portland announced its acquisition of an expansion team, but the first game didn't come until two years later. The Timbers played at the newly renovated PGE Park. Portland's famous Timber Army, which was then known as the Cascade Rangers, sang for the first time for their team. Timber Jim also made an appearance for the first time in 20 years, performing various lumberjack stunts. About 12,295 spectators watched as Portland beat the Seattle Sounders 2-0. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Elections for the Portland Public School Board are right around the corner. Here's what you need to know. This year, the school board's election is hotly contested. Three of the seven seats on the board are open, and only one of those races includes an incumbent member. 
Right now, seats representing Portland Public Schools zones 4, 5, and 6 are up for grabs. That includes all of Northeast above Ainsworth, as well as most of the east side beyond Cesar Chavez. In Zone 5, Executive Director of the Albina Sports Program, Gary Hollins, is facing off against a physician, Daniel Rogers. Zone 6 is a three-way race between Julia Brim Edwards, a Nike executive and the incumbent candidate, Libby Glenn, co-president of the PTA at Bridger School, and Max Margolis, a reading tutor. But the most dramatic race has been for the Zone 4 seat. Zone 4 covers much of North and Northeast Portland, which is home to many of Portland's Black students. The first candidate to register for the race was Margot Logan, a self-described Trump Democrat turned Trump Republican. She ran as a Republican challenger to House Speaker Tina Kotek last November. Her registration for the race caused outcry and a clamor to get more candidates, especially candidates of color, in the race. A handful of candidates enrolled only to drop out in the confusion. It ended up being a four-person race. Other candidates include Jamie Kale, a social worker and the co-founder of the protest group Mom Block, Herman Green, a church pastor and longtime school volunteer, and Brooklyn Sherman, a 19-year-old PSU student. This is a crucial moment for Portland's school board, which currently includes only one person of color. And as schools open for in-person learning, the PPS board will have to make good on promises to prioritize BIPOC students as well as student health and safety. Ballots have already gone out in the mail. The election will take place on May 18th. And now your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 388 new coronavirus cases yesterday. There were also three new deaths. The total number of cases now sits at 191,774. And Oregon has had a total of 2,500 33 deaths. 46% of adult Oregonians have received at least one vaccine dose, while 34% of Oregonians are now fully vaccinated. Shrinking vaccine demand is prompting big changes at the Oregon Convention Center. For the first time since COVID vaccines were made available, Oregon Supply House outpaced the demand for doses. While the federal government has been pushing states to get 70% of adults vaccinated by July 4th, Oregon's vaccination rates have been falling. So far, about 52% of Multnomah County residents have gotten at least one shot. That's higher than most of the state. In response, the Oregon Convention Center is now allowing walk-in appointments for anyone seeking a vaccination. This means no more racing or waiting to snag an appointment slot. But if you want to get vaccinated there, you'll have to move fast. On Monday, the convention center announced that it will stop first-dose vaccinations on May 27th and close its doors entirely on June 19th. Officials say it's closing because it's been effective at its job. Right now, about 465,000 people have gotten their shots at the convention center. That's about one in seven Oregonians. Even though the convention center clinic is closing, vaccinations will still be available at the Portland Airport 
and certain pharmacies. Two Oregon tribes are working to save two endangered fish species with a little help from Oregon's beavers. The Quam and Koptu, two varieties of sucker fish, were once a food staple for Klamath tribes. Only found in the upper Klamath Basin, there were once millions of these sucker fish in the region. But after dam construction in the 1990s brought toxic algae to the area, there are less than 45,000 fish left. The Klamath tribal government has adopted many tactics in their effort to save the sucker fish. Their latest ally in the fight to save the fish is Oregon's mascot, the beaver. Biologists have found that the presence of beavers increases biodiversity and productivity in an ecosystem. They improve water quality and river habitats with their dams. Last fall, Klamath tribal biologists built a structure that mimics a natural beaver dam to attract the rodent. If it manages to attract beavers, the creatures will start, start to build their own natural dams and maybe even restore the wetland system. The project is similar to the Umatilla River Vision. The Umatilla create habitats that attract beavers in order to support the rematriation of culturally important foods. The Klamath are also supporting two bills in the Oregon legislature that would protect beavers and restrict when, where, and how they can be hunted. Alex Ganiya, senior fisheries biologist for the Klamath tribes, puts it simply, quote, Our aim is to work with nature, not against it. Oregon legislators tweaked unemployment benefits last Thursday. House Bill 3178 will increase the amount of weekly wages a person can make while still qualifying for unemployment benefits. A person can now make up to $300 a week while still collecting benefits. This policy is aimed at keeping money in Oregonians' pockets as workplaces contend with COVID-19 restrictions and labor shortages. The bill experienced widespread support from Democratic lawmakers and labor advocates. Jason Brandt, President and CEO of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association has this to say, quote, Oregon's hospitality industry needs a helping hand for our workforce willing to pick up extra shifts on a part-time basis while keeping baseline benefits in place to help workers make ends meet. As the industry reels from a deep worker shortage, this legislation helps workers and their employers all at the same time. Many local colleges are requiring students to get vaccinated for the fall. This includes University of Oregon, University of Washington, Oregon State University, Western Oregon University, and Portland State University. Private colleges such as Lewis and Clark, University of Portland, and Willamette University will also require vaccinations in the fall. Reed College is currently deliberating whether or not to require vaccinations. The administration has promised a decision by June. Both students, professors, and staff will be required to get both doses. The only exception is if a student can prove that they have a medical or religious objection to getting vaccinated. Many colleges will host on-campus vaccine clinics, so students and staff will have immediate access to the shots. And finally, some good news. Oregon has a new dark sky park. What's a dark sky park, you might ask? It's a special destination for astronomers and stargazers to look at the night sky. 
It's a place with minimal light pollution and a great view of outer space that needs to be protected for educational, cultural, or recreational reasons. Light pollution can be harmful to animal behavior, scientific research, and human health. Darkness in nature helps preserve animals' migration patterns, habitat formation, and sleep patterns. Prineville Reservoir State Park has been named Oregon's first official dark sky park. It joins Sun River, which was named an official dark sky town in late 2020. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, DJ Ambush speaks with Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury about the recent series of fires in the Piedmont neighborhood in Northeast Portland. They discuss the potential causes of the fires as well as the impacts such acts are having on the community. Multiple homes in Northeast Portland's Piedmont neighborhood have had fires set on their properties late at night. Some of these fires were begun using yard signs with progressive and or anti-racist messages, and still other homes were found to have such yard signs on their property. The observation has driven victims to wonder whether these attacks were calculated or politically motivated and what that might mean for the safety of their neighborhood. Today, we're joined by Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury, who has the latest on the story. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good, good. I'm all right. I'm dealing with a slight sense of abandonment because Morgan isn't here, but (laughs) we're going to keep it moving. We're going to keep it moving. Uh, The Portland Fire and Rescue's initial report blamed houseless neighbors for these fires. One victim, Aletta Brenner, said, called that offensive. Why do you think Brenner found this offensive? Well, I think uh, it's, you know, at least my conversations with Aletta or and other neighbors in that neighborhood are, um, there are a number of houseless kind of encampments uh, near their neighborhood, kind of along I-5 and the exit routes near um, in the Piedmont neighborhood mm-hmm. and um, and uh, you know it they, they've drawn a lot of attention in the past year um, like any kind of household camps around the city since they have not been cleared by the city during uh, COVID um, and I think in some ways it's become an easy out to just point to right um, kind of the uh, the homeless camps as the reason for increased crime. Um, and, you know, in the way that she explained it to me, there's no record and there's no, you know, there, there was no belief that, that um, in the past that any, you know, homeless residents were setting arson and, and targeted fires um, on people's property. It was, um, you know, it seems different, very different than, uh, you know, accidental fires started by maybe uh, cooking stoves or fires that are set just to warm right. uh, folks who are living out there. And it, it kind of seemed like a leap, I think, in her perspective mm-hmm. um, and, and wasn't taking seriously the fact that this could be more targeted um, and maybe coming from someone who wants to stoke fear in um, in communities that support, you know, uh, progressive and anti-racist and, 
um, kind of inclusive values. Right, right. It, it almost serves two purposes there, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. to stoke that fear, but then also to place blame on the houseless communities. Right. So it's, it's a twofer. Ter- it's a terrible twofer, but it's a twofer. Um, has there been any conversation around uh, any, any investigation um, um, through uh, Portland Fire and Rescue? Yeah, I. it's my understanding that they're um, uh, initially they their investigation kind of ruled out the fact that this was a targeted um, bias crime, which is kind of the city's term for a hate crime, mm-hmm. um, you know, based on someone's political beliefs. Um, and that was because, according to spokesman for the Fire Bureau, uh, it sounds like the investigator just believed these signs were just accessible tools to help start a fire. They were just, you know, at just presenting themselves on these lawns. And, and if someone was trying to start a fire, um, it would be easy kind of tinder or kindling. Mm-hmm. Um, and because not all of these, some of the fires were set with, um, or at least one of them was set with uh, uh, shoes and a garbage can, I believe, a garbage can that had some accelerant in it, mm-hmm. um, aerosol cans. And so it wasn't, um, it, it seemed like it was maybe just a intent to set fires and then these yard signs helped um, help make the flames a bit bigger. Um, but at the same time, I know that the conversation is being kicked up the chain a bit to um, within the fire bureau to talk about investigating this as um, possibly a targeted, mm-hmm. targeted crime. So the, the case is still open. Well, that's relatively good news. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the neighborhood has seen quite a bit of activity over the last year. Is it such, And as it is situated in the area where racial justice protests have become relatively common, does anyone suspect that this has something to do with these acts of arson? No. Um, okay. And it's interesting. I mean, it was brought up only in contrast by a couple of neighbors, only in contrast to how police are responding to arson that um, has been you know, perpetuated by folks involved in the protests, which, uh, um, and kind of the other property damage, but just to say that, you know, Portland police are paying attention to these protesters, um, setting fires and, and, you know, creating press releases around them, but not really taking seriously, maybe these ones that seem, uh, targeted towards folks who support kind of the values of those protests. Right. Uh, but there's, no, um, there, yeah, there's no kind of suggestion or concern from the folks that I spoke with that these are connected at all to to protests or protesters. I mean, it could, I mean, the, the fear is that maybe it's coming from the opposite side of kind of the political coin, mm-hmm. that there's more, you know, right-wing um, kind of uh, anti um, uh you know, progressive, uh, yeah, uh, right. Folks who aren't in in favor of this movement, who are lashing out at others who support it, um, which has, you know, which th- there is some merit there. Definitely growing um, conversation around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the victims of these fires have avoided speaking publicly about their experiences with the attacks. Uh, what's your theory about why they wouldn't? 
Well, I mean, I think a lot of these folks have um, a real fear in not wanting uh, this to happen again <laughs> right. and not wanting to put a target on their backs. Um, I, uh, you know, it's always tricky in stories like this, trying to, you know, being open and honest to the fact that um, having your name in a story and having your concerns raised um, could put you on the map still for someone who's maybe vulnerable to being um, targeted. Um, yeah, and at the same time, I mean, there are a number of uh, everyone I or ever the neighbors I spoke to in the story were all white. Um, mm. There are a number of black neighbors on the street that was um, that were targeted and were just you know um, emotionally impacted by this string of fires and uh, they weren't interested in talking and I think you know I don't I can't read into that any further than I know but I I do think that there's a um, there's concern about kind of platforming this information and uh, and raising you know kind of putting yourself um, out there as mm -hmm. someone who doesn't support being or is feel threatened in any way. There's yeah. a certain vulnerability there. Yeah. With um, the acts of arson coming during an extremely fire prone season for this area, is there any increasing fears among the neighborhood? Yeah. Um, I think anywhere in the city, you know, the past month has been um, one of the driest Aprils, I think in, uh, in a very, very long time. And uh, there definitely is fear. There was fear in the neighborhood and also uh, in the fire bureau, um, mm. you know, being able to quickly put these fires out is really important. The fact that they got there quickly was, was good. Um, but yeah, you know, they said a fire like this could spread pretty quickly um, considering the current conditions or at least the conditions of, of you know, last week and mm -hmm. leading up to it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Do you um, have any idea of how many acts of arson have been reported in the area recently? Uh, the Portland Fire and Rescue are aware of three uh, okay. on the same block. Um, since then, others have com contacted me and I've learned of maybe up to five uh, total. They just might not all have been reported to the fire bureau mm. um and it sounds like some aren't necessarily uh it, it's just kind of like lighting these signs on fire and not like stoking a um a larger fire or trying to set a house on fire necessarily mm. Mm. but enough to still cause concern <laughs> yeah i mean I would be concerned. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I completely understand that. And then also, you know, just with the growing, you know, attacks and, and, and some of the right wing extremism and, and vigilantism in the city right now, I could yeah. understand everyone's fears around reporting and, and, you know, just wanting to say anything because you don't know where this could happen next. You know, right. you're just in your neighborhood going about your day to day. And I'm assuming, are these happening primarily at night? Like, you know, do you have any yeah. information? Okay. Yeah, these all happened about like three or four in the morning. Right. Um, so 
people were fast asleep. I mean, one of the people I spoke with um, witnessed the fire trucks coming to put out one of the fires, didn't see the incident happen, but he just happened to be up because he was, um, he had insomnia and was just kind of like walking around his house. Wow. Uh, so really no one else um, was awake to observe them. But there, there were a couple um, um, potential suspects captured on folks um, uh, security cameras. None of them were captured. I don't think lighting mm. the fires themselves, but okay. it was, you know, there is some information and some, um, you know, potential footage of these folks just walking around the neighborhood at the time that the fire bureau has. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, that <sighs> I can only imagine what that neighborhood is experiencing right now. Yeah, I can, I can yeah, it's scary to see that happen in your own, um, you know, in your own neighborhood and across, you know, for folks who weren't directly targeted, knowing that your neighbors are feeling that kind of fear is, it trickles over and hurts you too. Um, have there been any like local meetings within the neighborhoods and, and uh, neighbors getting together trying to maybe put some pressure or, or maybe find some type of resolve? I don't know, like a, a neighborhood nothing, watch, anything yet? Yeah, nothing really aside from, um, I think right now there's just a lot of conversations kind of uh, online or, you know, over text message or um, a lot of these neighbors kind of found out that they weren't the only ones who were, um, targeted by fire by connecting over the app next door. Ah, okay. uh, so I think that's kind of where a lot of the conversations have happened. I know that um, they've, you know, certainly reached out to the fire bureau for more answers and are putting pressure on investigators there to take this a little bit more seriously, um, or at least in their minds, what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, shout out to everyone in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Uh, there was an incident in our neighborhood. Uh, we're in North Portland, uh, uh, Northeast. And um, yeah, it was uh, three o'clock in the morning. Someone's car got broke into. And mm. I just happened to be up. I finished doing some editing one night and uh, you heard the alarms going off. And then you rush outside and the car door is wide open. Um a couple of minutes later, there's about eight or nine neighbors out there. And for a while, like, we were just on pins and needles for a couple of nights the rest of that week. So yeah. to have situations like this, not to say that, you know, uh, someone breaking into your car is equivalent to someone setting a fire on your property. But um, yeah. just to have that, you know, heightened level of anxiety, I, man, I do not envy them at all. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, major Yeah, especially things that happen while you're asleep, you know, yeah. make it harder to... Uh, to fall asleep and stay asleep if you think someone might be creeping around and lighting fires mm. burn down your home. Seriously. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll catch you next week. All right. Have a good one. You too. That was Alex Zielinski, news editor of the Portland Mercury. Thanks to Alex for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local your hometown in about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.